Welcome to the Off-Ramps podcast. I'm your host and co-founder of the Off-Ramp, Kristen. We know what it's like to feel helpless when faced with the magnitude of the world's problems. You want to do something about it, but don't know how or where to start. Well, that's why we're here. At the Off-Ramp, our goal is twofold. First, to keep you informed about the ongoings in immigration, migration, and global affairs. And second, to connect you with opportunities to make a real difference in the lives of forcibly displaced people both near and far. Practical and positive change is possible. Let's work together to make it happen. Hey everyone, thanks so much for tuning in to our podcast. We are recording this from three different places in the United States. Mom, Nell is in Texas. I am actually in South Carolina. I am, I guess, social distancing in my parents' house there. And tonight we are talking to Greg and Sue Smith who live in Virginia. Hey guys. Hey, hey Kristen, hey Nell. Hi, how are you doing? Good, good. Um, hey, everybody. Thank you guys so much for taking time out of your schedule to do this. I know you guys have a wealth of information on immigration and your perspective is a really important one. But I'm going to let you kind of introduce yourself. I, I Tell us who you are and what you do. Well, I'm Sue Smith, and I am a social worker, one of the founders of Lucha Ministries Incorporated here in Fredericksburg, Virginia, um, and I serve as the executive director of our organization. Um, I also coordinate most of our organization's case management and human needs programming, and really just oversee all of the programs of our organization. And I'm Greg Smith, and I'm also one of the founders of Lucha Ministries, and since 2016, I have served as the program director and a Department of Justice accredited representative for Lucha Ministries Immigration Legal Services Program, uh, where I, along with a volunteer uh, immigration attorney who works with us, we represent clients before United States um, Citizenship and Immigration Services uh, or, and the Department of, of um, Homeland Security. What does Lucha Ministries do? Lucha began um, a number of years ago, almost 15 years ago now, um, as really a bridge between the Latino immigrant community and the uh, Anglo community or the English speaking services that we had in our community. We recognized in our community that folks who didn't speak English really were at a disadvantage because there were programs and activities and opportunities for them in the community but due to the lack of English, they weren't able to access or even know about many of those programs. And so we began uh, 15 years ago to kind of link those folks up to make sure that they knew, e that each group on each side knew how to reach the other. Um, as we began to work with the community, we learned a whole lot more about their needs and um, uh, uh, just became really friends with the community, with many folks in the community and, and had deep roots in the community. But there was one underlying problem that we kept seeing that kept cropping up, um, and that was immigration status. Uh, we began working with many folks who were either in the process of, of getting a green card or they were undocumented. They'd come here, they were working part-time in construction, turned into full-time. Uh, many of them had been going back and forth to Central America or Mexico for many years. Um, 
And all of a sudden, when things began to change in the United States in probably the, the late 1990s and the early 2000s, uh, things began to tighten up at the borders and people no longer went home. They started settling in the communities. And so that's when we really began to kind of step up what we were doing and eventually saw that uh, immigration legal services was probably the best place where we needed to be putting a lot of our attention. That was the, the key. That was the one thing that was missing in our community in terms of being able to serve the, uh, the, the Latino immigrant community here in Virginia. Um, I'm going to throw this back to you. Uh, you've worked with Greg and Sue for a number of years now. From your perspective as sort of an outside slash insider, someone who works with immigrants, but also who's seen their work from the outside for a number of years, can you speak to why what they do is so important and why immigration legal services are so important? Over the years, as I've watched Greg and Sue and Lucha Ministries, and, and also based on our own experience working among displaced people, um, I see what they do at Lucha as being a bridge. We have so many of our displaced uh, folks who really are cut off, whether, and it isn't always just language, it's culture that can sometimes uh, create a barrier. It's, as she pointed out, lack of services, a lack of knowledge. Um, let's be honest, a lack of understanding about who immigrants are and the contributions that they can possibly bring. There's just a lot of things that put up walls and put up barriers. And Greg and Stu through Lucha Ministries have been able to provide a bridge. Um, you know, for so long, we thought that those of us who were working among immigrants, we were the ones who were bringing everything to them. We were helping them with, um, you know, with some of their physical needs and, uh, you know, trying to get them resources, etc. But what Greg and Sue have been able to do is to say, okay, look, we already have certain things available. There's already certain things inherent in our community that can help. But we also know that there are barriers. And so they've created a bridge and been able to bring those services together um, with the population that they minister to. Um, I think the other important element in this is that they did see a hole. They saw um, something that was needed that was not there. And so then they said, well, okay, now let's create something. Something that's really important to me is that we not reinvent the wheel. If there's something already available, if there's something already there, um, and it's just a question of bringing entities together, well, let's do that. But then if we find a gaping hole, then let's see what we can do to meet that need. Greg, I think there's a lot of confusion um, surrounding immigration because there's so there's so much vocabulary that's unfamiliar to the average American you know we tend to hear conversations about illegal versus legal but there's actually a lot more nuance you know we talk about lawful permanent re residents or asylees can you kind of walk us through perhaps some of the main um, legal statuses that exist and what they mean? Sure. Let's, um, let's begin with lawful permanent resident. That is, that's a term that a lot of people are not familiar with, but they're probably more familiar with green card holder. A lawful permanent resident and a green card holder are simply the same thing, the same person. So someone who has lawful permanent resident is, residence is someone who has a green card. A lawful permanent resident is essentially a non-US citizen or a non-US national who legally resides permanently in the United States and who may work without restrictions in the United States. 
there are some other terms also that we hear uh, in the news and especially these days. One of those terms is DACA. DACA stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And it really refers to a legal protection that's granted to younger individuals, mainly, mainly younger individuals. Um, these are individuals who were brought into the country when they were children. They didn't make the decision to come into the country on their own. A DACA is different than a lawful permanent resident in that lawful permanent resident is an actual lawful or legal status. It's a status that somebody has. DACA is not a legal status. DACA provides legal protection and it is a type of lawful presence, but it is not a type of legal or lawful status. So it doesn't confer that upon the individual. What it does is it just simply protects them from deportation for a period of time. And in the case of DACA for two years, after which it can be renewed, uh, but it has to be renewed in order to continue. One of the things that is important about DACA right now is that in June of this year, there will be a decision by the Supreme Court whether to continue DACA or to terminate DACA. So right now we're encouraging everyone who holds a DACA to renew their DACA, uh, to renew their, their DACA grant. Someone who has never had DACA, someone who has never applied for it, cannot apply for it now. You can't apply the first time now. But if you have DACA right now, or if you have ever had DACA, uh, and you just didn't renew it, or it was terminated, ended by the government for some reason or another, you can apply uh, to uh, renew your DACA. So we encourage everyone right now to do that in the event that they, um, uh, that the Supreme Court might end DACA in June, which we hope is not the case, but it could happen. Greg, can I ask a question? Certainly. So for, for those who um, have the DACA grant, um, and they're reaching adulthood. Um, what are their opportunities for education? What are their opportunities for um, um, for acquiring skills, et cetera, so that they can, um, you know, have the tools that they need to have a productive life? That depends on the state that they live in, probably. Um, certain states allow DACA, um, uh, DACA holders to apply for in-state tuition, other states do not. Certain states allow uh, DACA holders to apply for a driver's license, other states do not. Uh, it, it really depends on the local state circumstances more than it does anything else. Another thing that really affects the DACA holders in terms of education is access to resources. They don't qualify for uh, federal loans or federal assistance. And so many of them have to turn down scholarships or other opportunities or grants or loans, and they have to finance their education out of pocket for the majority of them. Even if they get in-state tuition, that's still uh, quite a chunk of change that we're talking about when they pay it. And most of the DACA holders that I work with, um, they generally hold down a full-time job and are also a full-time student in order to pay their bills and to, to uh, get that education because they really see that this is a blessing and something that they have been given and an opportunity that they've been given and they want to, to really take advantage of that as much as they can. We had a young man uh, in our population and we started providing school supplies to his family because they were neighbors of another family who we'd given school supplies to. Um, and this was probably in the early days of our ministry, probably 15 years ago. 
And this kid that was receiving school supplies, his name was Hector. And Hector was, I think at that time, about 11 years old, 10 or 11 years old. Um, he'd just come to the United States. And so we began helping and giving him school supplies. Every year we'd check in with the family, would ask what they needed, check and make sure they were okay, uh, include the family in our programs. They didn't need a whole lot of help, but they really appreciated it that, that they just had American friends and people who were watching out for them. So fast forward a few years and DACA didn't, still didn't exist yet, but Hector was graduating from high school and ready to go to college. And Hector was so determined to go to college that he was willing to get there and work whatever jobs he had to, to make that possible. He worked at McDonald's um, and he worked at the field house. He was really a soccer star in high school and had gotten several scholarship uh, offers from different colleges and universities. But because he didn't have a social security number, he wasn't able, or a legal status, he wasn't able to take advantage of any of those. And so he paid for three years of out-of-state tuition going to a community college before we finally helped him locate a Baptist university here in Virginia that put him on scholarship and allowed him to complete his bachelor's degree. That young man was so committed and had grown up in the kind of family that instilled those good, strong cultural values. And after he got out of college and graduated from college, he called me one day and was taking a job. And he said, Miss Sue, I'm gonna quit the job I have and I'm taking a new job. But he said, I wanted to let you know, because they say that I'm way overqualified and I shouldn't take this job. And I said, well, Hector, what's your job? And he said, I'm applying at the community health center to be a receptionist. And that sounded a little strange for this 23 year old young man um, with so much promise in his future with a business degree and everything. And he said, because I saw my parents struggle. I've seen them struggle for years and I'm bilingual. And I think going into that clinic that my parents went to for so many years, I think when people go to that clinic, they need to see a face at that front desk that, of someone who speaks Spanish, of someone who's bilingual, and of somebody who understands them. And he said, I can do that, and I'm willing to do that. And so for about five years, he worked. He became a medical interpreter as well as the front desk receptionist and worked at that, in that health clinic that served many, many undocumented immigrants in our community. And I just believe that was a testimony to the, the, the good things that immigrants bring to our community. They bring that sense of culture, that sense of an understanding of other cultures, a, a, an empathy for others who are going through that, as well as their language and cultural skills. Um, and I think Hector is just a, an example of one of those really, really great uh, young people who is uh, our future in this country. What is an asylum seeker and then what does their life look like? What, how are they different from sort of the, the individuals that we've already spoken of or the legal statuses that we've already spoken of? Well, Kristen, it really depends in part um, on if, if someone is here and they are an asylum seeker, that means that their case has not been settled. They haven't been granted asylum. Um, currently, the majority of people who are seeking asylum are being held in Mexico and they're having to wait until their case or their first court date comes up um, to actually uh, enter the U.S. Uh, to either ask for asylum or to wait for that court date. And so they're waiting for quite a long time. I've seen estimates of as much as between nine and 18 months that they're waiting uh, in kind of camps in Mexico. But in the past and for some uh, asylum seekers, they're actually able to come into the U.S. and wait in the U.S. for their case to be settled. 
Sometimes that requires a bond. Sometimes that requires that they uh, wear an ankle bracelet, a monitoring system, uh, so that they know a GPS monitoring system so that USCIS or um, Homeland Security or someone knows where they are at all times. Um, and it, it really depends on the family. I have one asylum seeker who has been a client of ours for about five years. Um, we got to know her from uh, a time when she had a crisis in her life and lost a baby. And we were able to go to the hospital and walk with her through a lot of that process as she was losing the baby and at the funeral afterwards and have continued our contact with her. But uh, she and her daughter came from Guatemala into the United States and she has shared her story and she's come here and she's waiting here. She's had an ankle bracelet. She's checked in with immigration on a regular basis uh, every month for about a year and a half to two years. And right now she's just simply waiting on her court date, which keeps getting pushed off. Um, but she's a young woman uh, in her early 30s from Mexico, or from uh, Guatemala, came through Mexico uh, to the United States. And then her daughter is a fifth grader this year, um, who is totally fluent in three languages. And so for these folks, it's really hard. The, um, they don't get a work permit immediately when they come to the United States. And so technically they look a lot like an undocumented uh, immigrant because they aren't allowed to work. They don't have a social security number. They'll work for cash or they'll work washing dishes or really whatever they can find. Um, because uh, without that without that that work permit, um, it really they're really limited in what kinds of jobs they can do. Um, but they want to file that application for asylum because that will give them a work permit once that application is filed. But in order to file the application, they need an immigration lawyer. And in order to get an immigration lawyer, they need money. And in order to get the money to pay the immigration lawyer, they have to work. And so it's really a vicious cycle that these folks fall into um, if they're waiting on asylum in the U.S. Um, because it's mainly because it's financial. A lot of it's financial. Um, they eventually get on their feet. And this, this young woman is doing quite well right now and hoping that her case after five years will actually come up before the courts this summer. You've mentioned, uh, both of you have mentioned various time frames, you know, 18 months, five years. I think one of the things that people don't realize is how long these processes can drag on. Can you speak to that a little bit and perhaps offer another example or two that you've uh, come across? Sure. Um... Well, I like the way that you phrase that because you phrased it in the plural time frames, and that is the case. There, the, the the different time frames going through the immigration system really depend on, I guess, a number of variables, which may help understand, may help us understand why it takes different time times for different processes. Uh, the variables might include uh, the type of benefit that an intending immigrant or someone who wants to to immigrate to the United States is applying for. Um, what immigration service center is actually handling their process because some uh, service centers actually are more backlogged than others. Uh, where uh, the intending immigrant may be coming from, if they're coming from a certain country in the, U in, in the world that um, is overprescribed, you might say, and therefore it might take them longer than others from other countries. And what type of person that is uh, could be depending on whether it's the, the spouse of a U.S. citizen or the spouse of a lawful permanent resident or the brother or sister of a U.S. citizen. So things like that are the variables that, that make 
the timeframes what they are. Let me give you some examples in terms of what the varying timeframes can be. So currently for someone right now who is trying to renew their DACA, we, we talked about that just a few moments ago, someone who is trying to renew their DACA right now, the process for receiving a final determination, all things being equal, there are no bumps along the way, that kind of thing, is probably somewhere between two and four months. So that is not a long time in immigration, um, immigration timeframes. That's a very short time. So DACA can be two to four months to get your DACA renewed. For a lawful permanent resident, as another example, who wants to become a US citizen, it can normally take somewhere around a year. And we've had some that have been shorter, we have had some that have been longer. So you, it's roughly around a year is about how long we have found it takes for somebody to naturalize as a lawful permanent resident to become a US citizen. For a refugee to become a lawful permanent resident, the process can sometimes take between eight and 10 months from the time you file to the time you get a final determination. But consider this, and this is, this is interesting, uh, and I looked it up recently. Currently, if you're a US citizen and you're petitioning for your unmarried 21-year-old son or daughter from Mexico, it is projected right now to take 23 years. So the question that I would ask myself is, how many of us, how, how, how long would I wait? Would I wait 23 years for anything? But right now it's projected that it might take as long as 23 years. Could take a few years shorter, could take a few years longer. But right now that's about how long it would take. Kristen, we don't deal with actual, we don't deal with asylum um, processes within our immigration legal clinic, but a lot of the people that I work with are actually asylum seekers who are working with immigration attorneys outside of our agency or our organization. And I've talked a lot about them and the length of time that that, that takes. And that's a longer process because it requires a lot of documentation uh, uh, based on uh, testimonies or on evidence of their asylum status. A lot of that has to go back to their home countries to find police reports or letters or witnesses or uh, uh, news articles documenting the violence in their communities or the fear that they actually feel, uh, giving a basis for the fear that they actually feel of going back to those countries. So that's why these oftentimes take um, years and much, much longer because there's a lot more research that goes in, whereas a lot of other people have those documents or have uh, the information more readily available. Asylum is extremely difficult and often it does take several, several years before they actually get through the process. Greg and Sue, can y'all explain just a little bit to our listeners why these definitions are so important? And the reason I'm asking this is because I hear so many people refer, for instance, um, to those who are in shelters in Mexico as refugees. Why is it not correct to call um, them refugees? What's the difference? Um, and why is this language so important in their legal process? I think uh, to answer your question now, in a nutshell, um, a refugee is someone who is fleeing their country because of violence or because of uh, persecution or for whatever reason, um, and they are actually invited to come into the United States as a refugee. They're held or they're go, they go to a camp in another country, and so they are there, but they have an invitation to come into the United States and are given a visa to come into the United States. 
whereas uh, asylees come to the U.S. border and request permission to enter the country. They aren't invited, they just kind of show up at your door. Um, and so that's the major difference. Um, the reasons for their fleeing their countries can be exactly the same. Um, they could be based on, on economics where there's no viable way to make a living in a country, which I think uh, in the community that Kristen and I were in, we were seeing a lot of migrants leaving Southern Mexico uh, for economic reasons. There was just no work, no money, no income, no land, and no opportunities for people there. Uh, that combined with climate change and failure of crops leads to a lot of migration for economic reasons. Uh, violence, persecution, we see that around the world. Um, so the reasons are the same. The, the root causes are the same for refugees and asylees, but the way they enter the United States is really what's different. I'm curious, Mom, uh, for you and then also for you, Greg and Sue, what other things do you find uh, yourselves helping your clients with or those that you serve? Work, work by far for me uh, with the folks that we work with and for all the reasons that Greg and Sue just outlined, um, there's, this, there's this lapse of time, um, for, even for refugees, there's this lapse of time um, to find fulfilling and profitable work. Another complication to the work issue is the fact that um, these folks come with education, perhaps, and credentials, perhaps, and uh, but this this is more often than not not recognized here in the United States. So you may have a doctor or a lawyer or you know a, somebody a skilled veterinarian or you know in our case with some of the work we do um, people who are skilled in um, tailoring etc but because they don't have the credentials that are expected and needed and honored here um, they're not able to they're not able to find that type of work but you've got to go to work you've got to find something so then that relegates you more often than not to a job where you can get cash payment or a minimum wage job. And unfortunately, that enters you into a cycle of poverty that can be very difficult to exit, besides the fact that then you don't have the money or the time um, to go and get the education here that would permit you to have um, better paying jobs. And besides that, English is a barrier. I was just having a conversation with someone these last two days who's been asking me a lot of questions about, you know, how can, how can the how can American businesses offer opportunities to folks who don't speak the language, who don't understand the culture, um, who don't know how businesses here work? Um, and I explained to him that's part of what what we do is to come alongside not only those who are seeking work, but those who can provide work and help everybody figure out how we can do this in such a way that um, that those who are coming to us can work with dignity can exercise their potential um, and can then become very, uh, very much contributing members to our society. One of the things that we have to think about, in my opinion, is the fact that when, when someone who comes to us, be they an asylum seeker, a refugee, an immigrant, or whatever, if they are here, don't we want them to contribute to this community? Um, I think we all would say yes. So part of what I think, uh, a lot of what I do and a lot of what I think 
those others in our community can do is help them find ways to achieve that. I think we find folks that are really in need of just some uh, guidance in how to navigate the systems within the community. Um, and I think that's where we step in a lot of times. Um, everything is new. And so uh, an ER visit, for example, um, if you don't have a primary care uh, physician, if you don't have health insurance um, and you get sick, where do you go? And most folks don't know where else to go and they go to the ER. And the ER visit, a, a simple ER visit can have you coming out with at least a minimum of $1,500 in, uh, in charges. And that's pretty much if you just go in and they say, go home and take an aspirin. Um, so helping people navigate the systems, helping them to understand that if your child has poison ivy, you can probably go down to your local CVS, uh, read some labels and find a product that you can take care of the poison ivy without having to go to the emergency room for that. And so it's a lot of mentoring, it's a lot of coaching and education about how our healthcare system works uh, as opposed to wherever they came from, where they just went down to the local clinic uh, and received treatment or received the medications that they need. Um, here it's quite different. Uh, education systems are another. We do a lot of coaching and a lot of encouragement uh, of parents on how to engage with their children's schools. Um, we find that that is essential. The kids really need their parents to be involved in schools and parents want to be involved in schools. But as Nell was saying, the lack of education closes so many doors um, and uh, uh, the lack of English, they can't uh, speak the language. School for many of them may have been a third or a fifth grade education. Uh, Mexico, in Mexico, it's really standard for folks to go, the highest grade is ninth grade and that's it. Um, and so when you're dealing with people with lower levels of education and in quite different systems from ours, they often just don't even know where to plug in and how to start to support their kids. And so just helping them to feel comfortable navigating those systems um, is really important. And I think, and finally, it's, it's food. We have a food pantry that we started a number of years ago um, with basically just handing boxes of food to folks who are not working or who are going through a rough time right now. And through the past uh, probably about 12 years that Cinco Panes has been operating, we've been able to shift the balance of power in the food pantry to where we now have clients themselves who are going to the food bank, they're choosing the products that are most uh, attractive to the Latino population, to the immigrant community, um, and they themselves are operating the food pantry. Um, so that's a, a way of empowering them, giving them opportunities to give back, giving them opportunities to minister and help their own community rather than being given a, a box of macaroni and cheese and canned goods that they really don't want in the first place. And this way they get rice, they get beans, they get fresh fruits and vegetables. Uh, the boxes are geared toward their kids and their kids' needs as well as the needs of the parents. And so we just really look for ways to help them to live more successfully where they are. We've heard, kind of switching gears a little bit, we've heard a lot lately about the new public charge ruling. Can you explain to us what that is and what it means? The public charge ruling, uh, the new public charge ruling took effect February 24th, so just a few, a few weeks ago. First of all, the new public charge ruling has defined public charge from someone who is primarily dependent on government support to someone who benefits from currently or who is likely to benefit from public support 
in the future that they have applied for for themselves. So you're considered a public charge if over a 36 month period, you have benefited from public assistance for over 12 months in that 36 month period. The major factor right now that we are seeing that is, that's kind of happening before our eyes, the major impact is that the new ruling has caused has really caused fear and in even some sense panic in the immigrant community because they're not quite sure what this public charge ruling really means for them in their lives. The public charge ruling is essentially only for those who are attempting to become a lawful permanent resident or who are in the country like on a student visa for instance and are seeking to extend their visa so it's not for those who, who want to naturalize and become a U.S. citizen. It's not for any other process. It's only for those who are intending to become lawful permanent residents or those who are changing their status. But it's causing panic in the community, in the immigrant community, because they don't understand this. So we get questions now of, well, for instance, my child is on reduced lunches or free lunches. Uh, I can't, I've got to take them off of that because that will mean I'm a public charge. No, it won't. That's not true. There are others who say, well, you know, I can't go to the hospital now or I can't receive services that are free from the hospital because that will consider me a public charge. No, it won't. It won't. It won't at all. We've got families who want to take their their U.S. born children off of public assistance because they think that's going to make me a public charge. No, it's not. Um, I think one of the things that concerns me most about the public charge ruling as a person of faith is that we as a great nation, as a a, a nation with so many resources and so many opportunities um, are closing the door to people simply because they're poor. If they don't have the education or they don't have the income or they don't have the ability to buy health insurance uh, out of their pocket, um, then we're saying that we don't want those folks in our country. Um, our worth as an individual isn't only uh, based on whether or not we need assistance every now and then. Everybody needs help sometimes. Um, and I think these folks can be really productive citizens eventually in our country. They can contribute a lot to our country. And it really doesn't depend on, on how much they have and how much they bring. It depends on who they are and their character and their values. You know, Greg and Sue are much more well-versed than I am in uh, current laws and, and advocacy, um, et cetera. Um, but for me, it boils down to this. Um, everybody is worthy of dignity, period. Uh, poor, not poor, um, job, not job, immigrant, not immigrant. Everybody is worthy of dignity. And for me, that dignity um, constitutes the ability to make a life for themselves, um, the ability to thrive, um, the ability to take care of their families. Um, the ability to experience the the love and care of uh, of a all powerful um, omnipotent God, they get to have that simply because they are human, um, no matter where they have come from. So for me, it goes down to dignity. Kristen, I think it goes for me also down to um, I've been on the other side. Um, I think Americans in foreign countries are privileged. I think they have benefits and, and advantages um, way over what immigrants who come to our country have. 
but I've been in a foreign country and I've needed help and I've needed assistance and I know what it is like not to understand the systems that are around you, not to be able to go to the grocery store and buy your familiar foods because they just aren't there and you don't know how to cook what's in front of you. And I know what it's like to have a sick child and wonder if they're even going to survive and healthcare providers who don't speak your language. Um, I know what it's like to get lost on a bus or to ride a bus into town and all of a sudden the bus stop moved from the time that you got off the bus until the time you came back a couple of hours later and there's no more bus stop. It's gone somewhere else and you don't know how to ask how, for help. And so when I moved back to the States, I moved back with that desire that I wanted to help others like I had been helped because people saw me and they understood that there were just things I didn't know. It didn't make me stupid. It didn't make me lesser. It just means that I, I needed some help at a certain time in my life um, to be able to survive in a foreign country. And I think that's what all of our immigrants and refugees here need. They need people to come alongside them and to help them and to walk with them um, in the early days and to get them on the right footing so that they can contribute in a mighty way to our, to our nation. What does Lucha mean? Why is the name of your organization Lucha Ministries? The word lucha is a Spanish language word. The, uh, the verb form luchar means to struggle or to wrestle. It's the word that is used in most of the Spanish language translations of the story of Jacob wrestling uh, with the man at the Jabbok Brook in Genesis. So it means to struggle, it means to wrestle. When we first began working with Latino um, Latinos, Latino families in the area about 15, 20 years ago, many times we would ask, how are you doing? And they would say, oh, I'm in the struggle. Uh, we're struggling. We're, we're, we're struggling along. And so they would use that word when they would respond back to us. Lucha is also an acronym. So I guess from the, from the Spanish word Lucha, we, we kind of formed it into an acronym. In English, it means Latinos united through Christ and brotherhood and support, brotherhood in the sense of solidarity. In uh, Spanish, Latinos unidos por Cristo en hermandad de apoyo. When first, a few years ago, when we first started um, working in immigration legal services, one of, the, one of the first refugee clients that we had to help her adjust status was a young, a young girl from El Salvador. I won't mention her name. And as we always do with all of our clients, refugee or other, we do an intake process, and especially if they are applying for lawful permanent resident. I asked the question, and I, I wasn't as clear as I should have. I just simply asked, have you ever been, have you ever had been involved or been in contact with law enforcement? And she looked at me and she said, yes. And I said, oh no, sounds like maybe she has been involved in some criminal affair. So I said, oh, oh please tell me about that. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't know. And she proceeded to tell me that um, her involvement with law enforcement was when she was in El Salvador and the police actually rescued her from the gangs. And I was the first time it, and it really hit me that we're dealing with individuals who, are, who have suffered, who have experienced, who have witnessed things that, um, that we don't often think about, that we don't like to think about, that we may not talk about in polite company, but it was, it was the first instance of really knowing that we're dealing with 
life and death matters with some some of the people that we are that we are helping and the seriousness of the work that we do this last week um sue and i had sue and i had the opportunity to be in dc washington dc to um to speak with um with aides and staff um staffers in the offices of our u.s representative and one of our senators here in virginia we went uh, to talk about the urgent need for immigration reform. They need to be talking about immigration. They need to be talking about DACA. They need to be talking about what happens if DACA is terminated by the uh, Supreme Court in June. What is going to happen to these individuals once their two-year DACA grant uh, expires and they can't renew? We need to urge our congressional representatives, our senators, to be talking about immigration and not avoid it, even if it is politically risky. So those are the things I would urge our listeners uh, to do. This is, a, this is an urgent need. Immigrants are vital to our economy. They're vital to our society. They enrich our culture. They enrich us. Um, for me, uh, it can be something very, very, very simple. I. I can't tell you the number of times that I have had um, my friends from um, other countries, other ethnicities, nationalities say to me that when they are met in public, they can feel the backs turn on them. They can feel the rejection. They can feel the shunning, whether it's a look or a frown. And, um, and, in recent months, um, ugly words. I encourage all of our listeners to do one simple thing. Be friendly. Welcome. Greet. Maybe even be so brave as to start a conversation. Um, things will go very far um, in a good direction quickly if we treat each other with kindness and respect. Um, so that's the first thing I would say. And then the second thing I would say is also very practical. Even our smallest of communities have community services, whether it's like um, Sue mentioned, a food bank or a community center. Um, these are places where um, immigrants and, and others will go for services very often. Do you have just an hour a week to volunteer at one of one of these places? Find it in your community. Just give a small amount of time and just see where it goes. There are very practical things we can do. They really appreciate it when someone recognizes the things that the, the areas where their children are struggling and where they need some extra help. And they welcome someone to come in and help them with homework or read with their children or to really do anything to provide a, a, a ride to church for their children so that they can participate in activities, uh, to teach them piano lessons or other music lessons, whatever your skills are, I think immigrant parents really appreciate an investment in their children. I believe that the hope is in the kids. Um, and I don't mean that it's too late for the parents who are immigrants, I just mean that the, the immigrants who've come here, the first generation immigrant has struggled, is struggling, and probably will continue to struggle with making this their home. 
for their entire life. It may never feel like home for some people, but the kids are that in-between generation, whether they came here as children or whether they were born here. Um, they're the ones that are translating for their kids, for their parents. They're the ones that are struggling in school as being the outsiders, even if they're American born. They're the ones that are feeling the discrimination sometimes when their parents don't even see it. Um, their parents face a different kind of discrimination, but my hope is that those kids are learning from their parents. They're absorbing those good cultural, strong cultural values of caring for family, of spirituality from their homes. Um, the good values that their parents have brought here and are instilling in them, and then they're combined with the best of American values. That's my hope, that those kids will capture both sides, the best of both, and be better individuals because of that. And we've seen that happen. We've seen so many kids who have, we've worked with for a number of years now who've grown into beautiful young adults um, who are working, they're successful, they're educated, they're literate, they are giving back to their communities in ways that their parents could never have imagined uh, when they brought the kids here or when they had the kids here in this country. There's a sense of pride and there's a sense of accomplishment for the parents. But I think that is the dream that the parents had and that is our hope for the future, that those kids won't see just the bad that has happened to their parents, but that they're able to look beyond that and see that they are able to achieve the dream that many of their parents never could. I think people can help us in Lucha Ministries by donating to our ministry um, to give us the financial resources that we need to continue providing uh, legal assistance to people. Um, to provide um, money to purchase rice and beans and other necessary uh, food supplemental items that we um, give out through our, our um, single Pines program through our food ministry. Um, we also provide scholarships periodically to students through our uh, Project Adelante. And you can donate on our, um, on our blog site, Lucha Stories, www.luchastories. Org. Well, I'm so grateful for the work that you guys do and for you. I'm just increasingly impressed with the way that you serve, that both of you serve through Lucha and in many, many other ways. I simply want to say thank you for hosting this, this conversation. Um, I think it's important, uh, the work that you do as well in, in having conversations like these on topics that are important to talk about these days. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Off-Ramps podcast. If you were inspired to act during this conversation, you can find us and learn more at theofframp.org or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Helplessness and hopelessness do not have to define your future or the world's. Become a change maker today.